Please be seated. I think that some of our problems with marriage stem from confusing the glamorous with the glorious. Allow me to explain. Many, many people have, don't have a high enough view of marriage. They consider it as an antiquated institution or a loose legal affiliation. But the Bible says that for, for marriage to be held in high honor among all. So we want to help you, give you an appropriately high view of marriage and its true glory. At the same time, many, many people have too high of a view of marriage. They desire it too much. They expect too much from it. They idealize or idolize it. They pursue marriage or enter marriage thinking that it will meet many of their needs, which can ultimately only be met by God. They buy into the romanticized pictures or portrayals of marriage on a screen or in literature. They think that having a, a beautiful woman or a handsome man on their arm will give them some status or prestige or respect from those around them. Or they enjoy a honeymoon and believe that those feelings will last forever. In other words, they believe marriage should be glamorous. But God didn't make marriage to be glamorous. Well, he did make it to be glorious. And there is a very important distinction between those two things. Marriage is meant to help make us glorious one day in splendor and holiness. But that often happens through a painful refining process, a, a crucifying of selfishness. More importantly, marriage itself is meant to reflect something eternally glorious. The glory of Christ's love for his bride, the church, which we see in the gospel. And thus, we must be honest and brutally realistic in our expectations of what marriage can do for us. A husband or a wife can never satisfy or fulfill you in the ways that God can. But we should also be humbly awestruck by what God can do through our marriages. Because God wants to demonstrate the glory of his sacrificial, sanctifying love through us. And that's amazing. Today brings us to the seventh and final message on marriage in our home life series. And today I want to summarize and synthesize all the ideas that we've been looking at under one big idea. How the gospel of Jesus Christ explains and empowers marriage for God's glory. And we're going to, again, be bouncing between various passages of Scripture today. But as we begin, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 again. Ephesians chapter 5. 
And as you find your place, let me ask you this question. Why do people fall in love and get married? Why? Like, I mean, really. Why is that? Why do people almost involuntarily get pulled along by feelings of attraction and romance? Why do they start spending insane amounts of time together, dating, taking long walks, talking on the phone, holding hands, chilling together? Why do they pine for each other whenever they're apart? Why do they get down on one knee or squeal, yes, and then start planning a big party to celebrate their love? Why do they decide to enthusiastically jump into what someone calls the mega commitment of marriage? I mean, there's a reason the term crazy in love exists. Because it can seem to make us go a bit crazy. And if you have either not experienced this kind of love or been disillusioned by it, the reason all this happens can seem rather baffling to us. But in Ephesians 5, God's word gives us a pretty surprising ultimate reason behind all this. Look with me starting in verse 28 where it says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we tend to rush over verse 30 there. It's a very short little comment, which says, we are members of Christ's body. But in that one little comment, it reveals how personal and tender Christ's love for us is. That he has so intimately united us to himself that it's like we're part of him now. And how do you take care of your own body? You feed it, hydrate it, you groom it, you dress it, you protect it, you rest it. If it gets hurt you or injured, you nurse it back to health. That's what Jesus does for us. Continually nourishing us and cherishing us in unfathomable love. But then... Notice Paul's logic, okay? He carefully places his quotation from Genesis 2 here, right after that, so that the therefore of marriage refers back to this. For we, or because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, Why do people fall in love and get married? This claims that it's because Jesus loves us so. Ray Ortland puts it well. It says, the eternal romance, the eternal love story is why God created the universe 
and why God gave us marriage in Eden, and why couples fall in love and get married in the world today. Every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical love story, whether they realize it or not. The Son of God, stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride as his very heart and body with his inmost sincerest love so that he can fit her to be with him forever above. That dramatic super reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. So, if you're married, or you will be one day, This is why we are married, believe it or not, in order to visibly reenact or dramatize the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the the good news or the love story of how God saves us through his son. To put it in point form, I'll phrase it this way today. That marriage is a limited temporary relationship that displays the shape of of the great eternal gospel. Okay, marriage is limited and temporary, yet displays the shape of the great eternal gospel. Now, it can be easy to overlook marriage until you see how central a theme it is in the Bible. World history begins and ends with a wedding. Genesis 2, Revelation 21. In the meantime, when God's people repeatedly fall into sin, God is seen as a scorned husband. And his people's idolatry is often likened to adultery. So God is this bridegroom who wants to woo us and win our hearts back to him. And then when Jesus arrives on the scene, he sometimes refers to himself as the bridegroom who's showing up who would go away for some time, but eventually be united to his bride forever. We recently looked at 1 Corinthians 6, which tells us that this is already partly realized. Believers have already been joined to the Lord and become one spirit with him. It's like we're engaged or betrothed to Jesus as the church. We're awaiting a final consummation, which will happen one day. As we join with the great multitude in Revelation, crying out, let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We sang today, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. As a pastor... I get glimpses behind the scenes at many weddings. And I'll usually get to see each of the bride and the groom beforehand, before we get started. And the nervous, giddy anticipation in those moments is palpable. They can't wait. And that's a a great picture of how we should be anticipating the return of Christ. Like It's our ultimate groom, husband, and lover returning to love and satisfy us all. In the meantime, he's given us a signpost to point us there in human marriage. Maybe think of it like an engagement ring pointing ahead to that day that's coming. 
Marriage is a, a temporary shadow of an eternal substance. It's a preview of coming attractions. Keep a finger or a paper there in Ephesians 5 and turn over to Matthew 22 with me. Matthew chapter 22. In this passage, the Sadducees try to trap Jesus with a gotcha question. Look with me, starting in verse 23. Matthew 22, verse 23. says, The same day Sadducees came to Jesus, and the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So taking that law, they go, Now imagine this scenario. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. It's like, ha! This marital practice makes the resurrection of the dead just nonsensical. Jesus is nonsense. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. As if Almighty God couldn't handle this situation. No, they vastly underestimated God's power and they misunderstood God's word. It goes on in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, the patriarchs died, but they would live again. As Sam Albury says, only a small mind can imagine that God's promises and purposes are constrained by human lifespans. And then verse 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I think that this astonishing teaching emphasizes that marriage is a limited temporary institution. It is meant for this life, not the next. Like after death, Marriage's purpose is no longer necessary. It served its purpose. Marriage is meant to point to the glories and the fulfillment that are awaiting us then. And Sam Alberry compares it to, to pictures that parents will hang on their wall of their grown children after they leave home. Right? The, the frame photographs they put up serve as reminders, pleasant reminders of their loved ones all the time. But Whenever the parents go visit their children or maybe go on a trip together with their kids, do they pick up all the pictures on the wall and bring them along with them? No. Why not? He says, when you have the physical reality, you don't need the picture. When you have the reality, you don't need the picture. And likewise, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So when we are eternally joined in union to him as his perfect bride, we won't need marriage anymore. 
We'll have the reality instead of the metaphor. We won't need the picture. Now, if you've been happily married, Matthew 22 has likely confused or bothered you before. Right? Like, if marriage is such a good thing, why wouldn't we still get to be married in heaven? But ironically, when we think this way, we fall into the same way of thinking that the Sadducees had. We are not trusting the power of God, and we are reading into the word of God. <laughs> but you're wrong. You, you don't know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Do you really think that the relationships we have with each other in the perfection of heaven won't be vastly superior to the relationships we have with each other while on earth? Like knowing the, the huge value that God places on marriage in Scripture, I have to believe that while I won't be married to my wife in heaven, our relationship will be even better then better than now. Just like all relationships, family relations and friendships, they will all be different, but they will be transformed to be even better. Jesus doesn't say anything here about us no longer loving one another. He doesn't say that all bonds are obliterated or that we'll be indifferent to our spouses. It's just we won't need marriage anymore because there are even greater things in store. And the, the greatest thing in store is the fulfillment of our union with Christ. Don't brush that off. The greatest thing in store is the fulfillment of our union with Christ because nothing in this world can satisfy, but he will. And that's coming. If you're married, I hope that these things would cause you to, to value and cherish your marriage more now, while at the same time tempering your expectations for your marriage. It's not ultimate. It can't fulfill you. It's too temporary and limited to do that. But it can point you to the one ultimate relationship that will fulfill you. If you're unmarried, I hope that this would help you see marriage as a good thing, rightfully desired. But at the same time, I hope it helps you not desire it too much. This can really depressurize you. So you know that if you miss out on marriage in this life and yet gain Christ... You don't miss out on life. And you still possess everything you truly need. Marriage is a limited, temporary relationship displaying the shape of the great eternal gospel. But that raises the question, how does marriage display this? In what ways? So let me offer you five ways which will sound familiar if you've been tracking with us through this series. First of all, marriage displays the shape of the gospel in its glorious divine design. We see the shape of the gospel in marriage's glorious divine design. 
And this takes us all the way back to our first week in Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw that marriage is designed by God with a grand mandate, loving purposes, and clear definition. It's one man and one woman united together in an exclusive, intimate relationship until death. It's meant to care for creation, to delight in oneness, to serve the creator as we multiply people and rule the earth and display God's goodness through marriage. But then we read Ephesians 5, and we're told that God's original divine design of marriage was meant all along from the beginning to illustrate the way that Christ loves his people. Flip back over there to Ephesians 5 and look at verses 31 and 32 one more time. Where it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, through the picture of marriage, we can see the glorious way that God designed the gospel to be a union of one groom and one bride united together in an exclusive, intimate relationship forever, which is even better than human marriage, as death can't end it. God designed the gospel to restore creation to a glorious state, setting it free from decay. God designed the gospel to initiate a union, a oneness that far surpasses marital unions. God designed the gospel to multiply redeemed, restored people who will reign with him. And God designed the gospel to empower us to serve him and to display his goodness. So you see how marriage then reflects God's incredible design for the gospel. Ephesians 5.32 says that marriage is a profound mystery. But we don't tend to see marriage as that profound. To paraphrase something that Ray Ortland said about his wife, when I introduce my wife Angela to someone else, no one has ever gone, what? You're married? Like, that's crazy. No way. Like, I've heard of marriage before, but I've never actually met a married couple. This is incredible. Hey, everyone, look. Marriage. As marriage doesn't naturally astound us, we need new eyes to see the glory that God's put there. And Ortland says this. There is a reason why marriage appears in Genesis in the context of the creation of the universe. I've never seen a creation of a universe, but I have seen many weddings. Marriage may be common to us, but it is why the universe was created, and not for Adam and Eve only, but even more for Christ and his church. So may God give each of us these new eyes to see the profound within the common. A second way that marriage displays the shape of the gospel is in its faithful covenant love. We see the shape of the gospel in a good marriage's faithful covenant love. And this was week two. 
right? We saw that in marriage, we don't enter a contract or a consumer relationship. We enter a covenant united by God that demands faithfulness and is sealed by love. When we make vows, we're not just declaring present love, we're promising our future love. And the the gravity of this covenant is actually what makes divorce so tragic. Because it doesn't only break a promise, it casts disrepute on the gospel. How so? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And Christ will never leave his bride. Likewise, on the other hand here, this is why the adultery or abandonment or abuse that leads to permissible divorces is also so tragic. Because Christ will never cheat on his bride. He'll never leave her. And he'll never hurt her. The covenant of marriage is a covenant that was modeled by Christ. Why did he choose to come to earth to die for us? Because he loved us that much. And because he rose again, he wasn't just making a declaration of present love. Like, guys, I love you so much right now, but I'm not going to forever. No, he was promising that his love would faithfully continue into the future. This gospel is really the answer to the chronic brokenness we see in marriage all the time. We get disappointed or hurt by marriage and divorce because we are unfaithful people. But we have a faithful God who will never leave us, never give up on us. So we need not despair or give up on others or leave them. Remember what God promised to his wayward people in Hosea 2? It's a, a reaffirmation of his covenant love. It said, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So beautiful. May we be freshly amazed that God would love us like that. And by God's grace, may we then be faithful to our own covenants of love. If you wonder what this love practically looks like on a daily basis, the Bible tells us. If you recall Pastor Kenny's sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, and how true love is not merely performance, but that it's personified, it's expressed, and that it's preparing us to see God. Famous words, love is patient and kind. Love is not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We can also see what this love looks like in Ephesians 5, which we studied in some depth. And from there, I think that we can see that marriage displays the shape of the gospel in its distinct sacrificial missions. We see the shape of the gospel in marriage's distinct, loving, sacrificial missions. And this was in the most potentially controversial sermon. 
we saw that God has commissioned complementary missions for spouses in marriage in order to love and become like the Lord. We saw how husbands and wives have unique missions, roles, or callings in marriage, that they're unique, but at the same time, the heart of the missions is the same. They are both saturated in sacrificial love, and they're both based on what Jesus did. And so, like Christ submitted his will to the Father, and like the church submits to Christ, wives are called to sacrificially love and submit to their husbands. If you object to this point, I don't have time to address it today. You can go back and listen to September 25th sermon. (laughs) And then, like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, even to the point of death, husbands should sacrificially love and lead their wives. Look at verse 24. Here in Ephesians 5, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like Rebecca McLaughlin says, male or female, if we grasp at our right to self-determination, we must reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. Our roles in the great marriage are not interchangeable. Jesus Jesus gives himself for us. Christians, male or female, follow his lead. Ultimately, my marriage is not about me and my husband any more than Romeo and Juliet is about the actors playing the title roles. We all, both men and women, must neither abdicate nor abuse our God-given missions. Like our whole sin problem started when a man and his wife fell together into rebellion against God. But they didn't just disobey God. They reversed his design for them. Think about it. Adam should have been graciously leading and protecting his wife. Eve should have been following his lead and definitely not seizing it. Instead, she ate the fruit and he did nothing to stop her and then followed her into sin. And now we are all born cursed to gravitate toward the same sinful ways and much more. Thankfully, the gospel provides the solution for our fallen human condition. When we see Christ sacrificing everything in order to love us, and we put our faith in him, turning from our sins and trusting in him to save us, he does. He forgives. He transforms us. And this is something that I hope every person here either has done or will do, even today. Like following Christ won't make life easy for you. But it will set you on a path towards glory. This path for married couples involves reenacting the sacrificial love of Christ for each other. The shape of marriage for Christian husbands and wives really is the cross. It's, It's loving by giving and serving 
and enduring and caring no matter what the cost. And that's not easy. Self-sacrifice never is. It will be costly. But it will also be worth it. And Jesus' sacrifice not only saves us into a relationship and union with him, but the same sacrificial love empowers us to then live out his love for others. Like, are you willing to sacrifice like Jesus if it means you get to show off his glory in the end? Hope so. But that's not all. Believe it or not, marriage even displays the shape of the gospel in its delightful, sacred intimacy. We can see the intimate love of the gospel in marriage's delightful, sacred intimacy. As we've seen, sexual intimacy is a holy gift from a holy God for marriages to delight in. And this holy sexual intimacy must be vigilantly protected inside and outside marriage. And even though sex has been greatly defiled and we're all sexually broken people, we, and if we're married, our marriages can be re-sanctified by the gospel. A powerful place we saw these truths in scripture was in 1 Corinthians 6. If you can turn over there, 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll just read it again quickly for us. Partway through verse 13, it says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's that union again. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The, the logic here is that since we are united to Christ in the ultimate marriage, our sexuality is sacred. It's set apart. But what does sex have to do with the gospel, you ask? Well, again, it's a signpost. It's, it's a human experience that points to pleasures immensely greater than it. Like the ecstatic joys and delights that can be experienced in marital sex are pale reflections of the joys and delights awaiting us in Christ in eternity. In Hosea 2, God talks about alluring his wayward bride, romancing her, wooing her. Or in Isaiah 61, God and his people are compared to a bride and groom, decking themselves out with robes and jewels, and they're rejoicing in each other. 
As McLaughlin explains, God created sex and marriage as a telescope to give us a glimpse of his star-sized desire for intimacy with us. It's a great picture. So for those who are married, let's nurture and protect the sacred intimacy that God has given as a precious gift. And recognize that if you have Christ, you have all you need to do so. You don't need a rockin' hot body or a rollicking romantic getaway. You need sacrificial love and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and gentleness and grace and generosity all of which the Holy Spirit is actively growing in you. However, after all of that, we still think marriage can seem so broken and cursed, so unlike the picture the Bible draws. Like maybe marriage should look like a lifelike photograph that we hang up on the wall. But more often, it's like a, a scribbled stick figure portrait drawn by a toddler. Like some of you are in sad, or struggling, or even broken marriages right now. And if that's you, I would urge you to see past the brokenness today to the perfect marriage that you are a part of. No matter how imperfect your earthly spouse has been, if you have Jesus, that's enough. By God's grace, our relationships can reflect or grow to reflect his love. But even when they don't, we can fall back on the one who sees us and knows us and compassionately loves us, and will never abuse or abandon us. We have him. I also encourage all of us to view marriage as a tool that God can use to help change us for the better. Like the message Pastor Kenny preached two weeks ago, marriage grows us in holiness. It's meant to do that. In both the painful and the pleasant, marriage can help shape our character. And why is this? Because again, marriage is a reflection of something much greater. Marriage can be involved in the process, but the gospel is actually what cures us of sin. And this is the final point I'll give you today. That marriage displays the shape of the gospel in its gentle, sanctifying power. Marriage displays the shape of the gospel in the gentle, sanctifying power it can exhibit. And we can so easily believe that marriage is meant to make us happy. But no, marriage is meant to make us holy. Or actually, better yet, you could say that it makes us happy in holiness. There's not a false choice between the two. The idea, though, that marriage should make us just, it should just make us happy, fulfilling our own personal desires, it impacts all of us, and it greatly impacts singles, too. 
Because many don't see marriage as an arena in which to grow, but instead are looking for someone who is already near perfect. An imaginary Prince Charming or Cinderella without any character flaws. That's not what God's word envisions for marriage. It sees two sinning sinners who are joined together by God for their long-term growth and eternal good. Turn back one more time to Ephesians 5, where it says this in verses 25 to 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's the good news, Christian. There is a perfect spouse out there, and they're already yours. Whether you're married to another human or not, you've got Jesus. This should help singles stop looking for a Jesus-level figure for a prospective mate. Now, don't get me wrong, don't settle for an ungodly person, but have realistic standards. This should also help married people have more grace for their imperfect flawed spouses. And you can clearly see the weaknesses or deficiencies in your spouse while having a vision for the person God wants them to be or become. Like we need to recognize that God is at work in people's lives and his plans for them are glorious. Like men God is making something ravishing out of the women around you. Women, God is building something magnificent out of his men. There are flashes of glory even now. There's far more to come. And marriages get to play a part in that. We have great power to help our spouses grow. Like Ephesians 5 talks about husbands doing, and more so, Christ doing for us. Like Christ, we are to seek each other's holiness gently and patiently, speaking the truth to each other in love for each other. Tim and Kathy Keller explain that what keeps a marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose, and you're just playing at being married. Think about it. If you are preoccupied with your spouse's shortcomings, consider again what Jesus did for you. He didn't despise you even in the midst of your greatest failures. He loved you anyway. A Christ-like spouse 
will care for their spouse even more in the midst of imperfections. Gently nourishing them toward their destined glory and magnificence. The Kellers use this illustration. If you've ever lived in or traveled to a mountainous region, that's not us, but if you've been there before, you'll know that you can't always see the mountains. Sometimes it's foggy or rainy. You can look out your window and hardly see anything but the ground. But eventually, the rain stops and the clouds part. You catch your breath because towering above you is this massive, magnificent mountain. But later, the clouds roll back in and it vanishes for another while. And they say that all believers have an old self and a new self. Your old self is crippled with bad habits and fears and anxieties and besetting sins and character flaws. Your new self is liberated from all of that, becoming increasingly like Christ from glory to glory. Sometimes your old self, though, like the clouds, makes your new self seem invisible. Sometimes the clouds part and you see what you're becoming. The love and graciousness and courage and holiness that God is forming in you. In marriage, if we're to love our spouses to the fullest, we will see glimpses of this glory and we will say, I see who God is making you. And I'm excited to be part of that journey with you. I'm excited to to partner with you and the Lord in our journey toward his throne. And then when we're there, I'm going to see you in all your radiance and say, I always knew you could be like this. We need to give ourselves to the work that Jesus is doing in each other, envisioning what will be. After all, This is precisely what Jesus has done for us. Marriage is a limited, temporary relationship that displays the shape of the great eternal gospel in its glorious divine design, in its faithful covenant love, in its distinct sacrificial missions, in its delightful sacred intimacy, and in its gentle sanctifying power. And so you see that as we've been talking about marriage the last number of weeks, We've really been talking about the gospel all along. When you hear of Jesus suffering, naked, bleeding, and dying on a cross, in order to to take away the, the vile evils that we have vomited out upon the earth, you know the gospel is not glamorous. But when you hear of Jesus rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, returning to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords over a a perfect, redeemed, glorified people, you know that the gospel is totally glorious. May our marriages grow 
to reflect this reality more and more all the time until the day that all the clouds clear away and the shadowy shape is swallowed up by the solid substance of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please continue your